Hello, hello, this is Kate. On today's episode, we give the A's to your Q's. That's right, it's our first question and answer episode, and we'll be bringing these to you every 10 episodes moving forward. Today, we tackle three questions, including how to charge for your services, how to handle difficult clients, and what to do when your client shops you. Thanks for joining us today. Let's dive in. Episode 10. This is a Q&A session. Answers to your burning design questions. Oh, this is gonna be good. I'm excited to dive in. We're gonna do these every 10 episodes and we already have way more questions coming in from our listeners than we can tackle today. But Kate, I'm super, super jacked about this. There's some really solid questions and I hope we have good answers. Yeah, no, I we really appreciate all the people who um, sent in their questions. There was a little moment there where, to be honest, Leslie and I were like, you know, we're just getting started with this podcast, really. And we're like, we'll just make up some hoping, questions. We're hoping that we'll get just one question. And we got lots of questions and some of them are so good, but their answers are clearly going to be more involved so that this could actually end up being full episodes. But I'm excited to do the Q&A. I think it's fun and interactive. You guys, please send us your questions and we've got a nice little, you know it, spreadsheet where we are tracking all of those and we will um, get to them, as Leslie said, every 10 episodes. So this is our first one and I'm pumped. Yeah. If you want to ask us questions for future episodes, there's a few ways. If you go to the website at designersgettingcoffee.com, there's literally a Facebook messenger chat in the bottom right hand corner that goes directly to us. You can also DM us on Instagram at designersgettingcoffee or if you are old school, you can shoot us an email at hello at designersgettingcoffee.com. We check all of those. Would love to hear from you about show questions and just general stuff you want to hear about or get feedback on in your own businesses. Awesome. Well, should we dive in? Yes, ma'am. Let's do it. Okay. Do you want to start or do you want me to start? <laughs> I can start. Yay. So our first question is actually from a friend of ours here in Waco, Texas. Her name is Melissa. And her question is, and this is a doozy, how do you determine your hourly rate? Is it based on the local economy? Is it based on what you need to make or what you feel you're worth? Great question, Melissa. And I think there are a lot of people who are asking themselves this question. We are always asking ourselves, am I charging enough? Am I charging too much? And yeah. so um, I think... Um, there are a couple of things that we have done um, differently and the same that um, help us determine what feels right for us from a standpoint of our experience level. Um, the, the local economy is an interesting one. Yeah. I, I, if you had asked me that same question a year and a half ago before I moved to Waco, I probably would have given you a different answer and said, and to varying degrees, I think, yes, the economy plays a role into it somewhat, but I wouldn't weight it very heavily because I actually thought when I moved from Denver to Waco that I would probably need to lower my rate because it's a smaller town and people just aren't used to paying for that level of service. Um, I ended up hiring a business coach when I moved here and she encouraged me to actually raise my rate as did Leslie and I ended up doing it and I've had not, I haven't had a single struggle at all um, getting the 
the rate that I'm asking for. Um, and I also feel like if, if there is a pushback on, on my rate, then it's probably not the right client for me based yeah. on the level of experience and where I am today. You know, somebody that's been doing this for 10 more years beyond me, they're going to, they should be charging more. <laughs> yep. And, um, you know, someone that's just getting into this field, um, should be rating or charging their, for their services accordingly. So when you have a, this is going to be a good question for you and for me, when you first started freelancing, whether it was going on your own, when it was just like freelancing for other designers, what were you charging per hour? Well, that seems like forever ago. The very first project I had, I was only charging $50 an hour. Mine was 30 Canadian. So that's like 10 bucks US. Wow. <laughs> the exchange rate. Wow. What little... But designer babies but you know what that's where I was and that's what felt I mean even for me that felt a little hard at first but I didn't know jack crap about business I knew plenty about design but I didn't and then I did have a pretty good process built in but there were so many things that I had to figure out as, as a designer in the residential world and doing it on my own um, I probably should have and could have charged more but for me at that moment in my life that's where I was um, and I, I think if you're just getting started out too, um, it, you know, if you have some design experience, whether it's in the commercial world or, or residential under somebody else, just think about the amount of experience that you have, the amount of education that you have, formal training, um, and yeah, and just kind of do your research and find out what, what is the market bearing. And, um, but i for me, I very quickly raised that to 85 and then it just, just about every year I raised my rate somewhat. Good for you. The biggest was, the biggest was about a $50 an hour increase. No, it was like $75 an hour increase. That's impressive. I've done yeah. the same thing. Was really I hard. have been all over the map. So, you know, have when you I sort of first started freelancing, I was $30 an hour, but I wasn't taking on my own clients. I was freelancing for other designers. So it's a little bit different, but I remember working with a business coach when I was going to go on my own and she had me, you know, kind of do the math of what I would need to earn and what it would look like. And I think that put my hourly rate at around a hundred dollars an hour. And I wanted to barf and die when I heard that number. I was like, how can I possibly charge a hundred dollars an hour? Yeah. And that was almost four years ago. And from then I have been everywhere from 95 to 135 to 175. I've even tried 225 an hour and that just didn't feel, didn't feel right to me. I don't think I'm quite there yet. So I've settled, settled back down at my rates 150 right now. And that works for me here in Waco. I think Kate, you're in a similar hourly rate range and we have um, staff, people that help us that we charge less for. I had also tried charging one rate for the whole firm, but I just found it didn't feel, didn't feel fair. It didn't feel aligned to be charging my rate for administrative help for someone who is more junior than I am. And I can tell you guys, I, I mean, I've literally tried it all. I've tried all of it. So if you have any questions, I've probably done it and I can tell you how it went. Yeah. So where, so where have you landed today? It's just a flat hourly rate for you. And then is it tiered for the other folks that work with you? Exactly. For a little okay. while I was doing a flat hourly rate for the firm. I mean, there's only three of us. And so the, the coach I was working with had encouraged me just to have a flat hourly rate for everybody, which on paper sounds nice, 
but I just, I got some pushback from clients about, you know, not feeling, well, if I'm not getting you, why am I still paying your rate and things like that? I had just one client who was kind of mean and didn't love that I had assistance as she put it with quite a tone of disdain, which I was not a fan of. I was like, these are not assistants. These are the people that allow me to do my job. (laughs) I don't want to derail the conversation entirely, but I do want to point out that in this case, it it may have made sense for you. And I know how analytical you are. You probably did the, I know for a fact, because we talked about it, the research to come up with that decision on your own. It was the client that got you thinking about it, but ultimately we shouldn't be responding to the demands of our clients on every little thing. No, that is a great point. I think what happened with her is like, she just poked that, it was already a pain point and she just kind of poked it and reminded me that it was something that I might want to revisit. But you're absolutely right. You cannot just be- You make your decisions for your business, Yeah. but clearly we need to be listening to our clients. And if we especially keep getting the same feedback, then it's worth considering. But um and I don't think you'd do that, but I, it may, it could sound like that to our listeners. So I wanted to go back and just say like every time, you know, somebody makes a comment or gives you pushback is not necessarily a reason to just turn your business on its head, but do keep it in mind. Do take the consideration seriously and figure out what's best for your business. Before we move on, I want to say one of the most important things that I ever did to come up with my hourly rate um, once I knew I'd been doing this for a while and I knew that I needed to raise it, but I wasn't sure how much was I actually did a a method of working backwards from, and I still do this today. I take a look at my household expenses and what I need to be bringing into my family to, um, you know, for our, our cost of living and where we are. And that includes trying to save money. Um, And I figured out based on my, my spouse's income, what I need to contribute. And that's my target number. And from there, I figure out, okay, how many billable hours in a year would I need? Then take out my um, my expenses for running my company and to, to figure out what is my target like net income for the year. Um, and then I'm able to take from that, I actually look at the entire year week by week. My kids have a ridiculous amount of time out from school. They have <laughs> several <laughs> random weeks throughout the year. Like one of them, we, our kids go to the same daycare, but in July, at the end of July, beginning of August, they have an entire week where they're closed. I could go scramble to find childcare, but I really just want to take that week off and be with my kids and hopefully take a vacation. So I just mark that week off for the year and say, there's no billable hours that week. There's no billable hours. These, all these other weeks, Christmas holidays. So that leaves X many X number of weeks available in the year to actually work. And based on that number, how many billable hours per week would I need to be able to meet my goal? And figure that out. And that's where I get my hourly rate. Oh, so you've done a very like analytical kind of very black and white. These are the numbers I need to be making to support my family. Therefore this becomes my hourly rate. Yes. And I think one of the biggest learning moments I had was the first time I had to pay income tax on my, on the income that I made myself versus working for a company where they pay into your uh, income tax. The, the rate 
of income tax for a solopreneur like we are is much, much higher. And I hadn't planned for that. Oh. And so I realized, you know, even if I'm making $50 an hour, I'm giving away a good chunk of that right off the bat to the government. And, and that's fine. I am, I am all for paying taxes. <laughs> I believe um, they're an important part of our economy, but I hadn't planned for it. And so that's when I realized, okay, after taxes, after my expenses, how much of that hourly rate is actually left for me to take home? And it wasn't as much. So that's when you start to do it that way, you start to realize, oh yeah, I actually need to be charging quite a bit more. So do I would start with doing that math too. Think about what other people are charging in your area as well. Think about your experience level. Yeah, so really all three things that Melissa asked, is it based on economy, what you need to make, or what you feel you're worth? The answer is yes. It's <laughs> It really is all three. And I think that was really smart to look at the the nitty gritty of your numbers and figure it out. And what I wanted to touch on is I keep hearing from all sorts of design experts and coaches, raise your rates, raise your rates, raise your rates. We're not charging enough. And I think that's there's a lot of good in that, in that I do think uh, most designers do undercharge for the value they bring, for the service they are capable of. But I feel like if you're going to raise your rates, it has to feel aligned with you and you have to deliver on that. It's not so much just to say like, I charge $300 an hour and I'm the best, but you're not doing anything differently or better than you did when you were charging a hundred. There's more to just raising your rates. And yeah. I have tried that. Like I said, I jumped from, I think it was 175 to 225. Like I, I crossed that $200 an hour threshold and I did do one project at that rate. And I just felt icky about it. Like, even though it was great, the client loved it. We picked some awesome stuff for her. It just, I didn't love the fact that like four hours went by and I had to bill like a thousand dollars. And I was like, holy crap. Like that doesn't feel like a thousand dollars worth of value. And that's where I kind of struggle with it. As a single hour, I'm like, boom, I can kill it for you in one hour for 225. <laughs> but when you started spending 10, 20 hours on a project, the, the, the cost to me of what I was billing, it just didn't click. It just didn't feel aligned to the, to what I was delivering, to what I was giving. And it's not that I was doing a poor job or under, under delivering. It just isn't where I am. And so I ended up dropping back down. I I think you're right. And I think, I think it might've been Nancy Gansikoffer that said this to me. Maybe she said it to you too, because we have shared the same coach, but she said, you have to be at an hourly rate where you are not afraid to charge for every minute that you work for that client. Yes. If you find yourself shaving off a few hours here or there because you feel like it, you didn't provide the value or it just feels icky, then you're Oh my gosh, it's, it's adding up so quickly. I can't possibly send them a bill for this amount. You need to be able to feel confident in charging for every single minute that you work for that client. Amen. That is great advice. And I loved when Nancy said that to me too, because it's true. And that's, that's part of how I landed where I am now, because with the 225, like I would be finding all sorts of ways to, you know, eke off 15 minutes here or there. And that's money guys. That's money in your pocket that you are throwing away. So. Ooh, one more question before we move on. Do you charge the same hourly rate for your consultations and for e-design? And 
also it's a two-part question i know that in the past we have both explored charging a higher and maybe we'll get to this with dallas's question but charging a higher rate if you're not doing purchasing because you are not getting any of that uh income or profit from the sale of merchandise so you charge a higher rate for that. Um, have you explored, what do you kind of do for each of those scenarios? So my consultation, I don't treat it as an hourly rate. I just have a fee for my consultation. Yeah. So I do a 90 minute consultation up to two hours. So basically it's 90 minutes and I kind of give them a bonus 30 minutes to, you know, they feel like they got really great value. And I just charge a flat rate for that consultation. I don't break it down to what it is hourly. But yes, if you were to break it down, it is higher than my hourly rate. Right. And what about e-design? Do you charge a hourly, higher hourly rate if you were to, because you know, you, you estimate your hours for a project. Yeah. Do you estimate those hours and then multiply them by your hourly, your regular full service hourly rate, or is it higher for e-design? No, it's a, it's about the same. And honestly, I'm usually more profitable at e-design because I'm getting faster and better the more projects I do. So yeah. I started Actually, when I first started e-design, I looked at another designer I admired and used to freelance for, and I looked at her rates, and I was like, okay, well, I'm not her, so I'm going to use these as a ballpark, and I'm going to drop them a little bit. And so they were just numbers I pulled out of thin air, basically. But now I've gone through and tried to find that sweet spot between being profitable, making sure I can get the design done within the time I've budgeted, and also having it be a place, having it be a service that is at a lower price point than my full service clients. Awesome. So yeah, it, it, it's a little bit of, I get, it's sort of, I, I'm intuitive. I kind of just feel things out and I've done a few projects with e-design. There was one office project I did that was like hugely profitable. I got it done way sooner. And so I've actually lowered um, what I now charge for it. Not because I don't think it's worth more, but I want to be able for it to reach more people. And I can still be profitable with it at a, at a lower rate because I'm just, I'm getting better. Yo, you get better at the more you do. Yeah, that's Wait. true too. When you think about your efficiency as you get more experience, then, but you shouldn't lose income because you're more efficient. You should be adjusting no. your rate accordingly or that kind totally. of thing. But yeah, exactly. Where are you at in terms of charging for your initial consultation and e-design and all that kind of stuff? What does that look like compared to your hourly full service rate? For the consultation, it's the same as yours. It's a two-hour flat fee, and it is at a premium. It's not my regular hourly rate. And um, for full service, it is hourly. Um, and for e-design, it is a flat fee. And that flat fee is based on a premium of my hourly rate. So like if a kitchen or a living room takes me you know, 25, 30 hours to put together. It's not multiplied by my regular full service hourly rate. It's slightly higher. But part of the reason for that is because I am also taking into account. So I actually put together physical packages and boxes that are really beautifully designed that I send out. And I'm also covering my costs for that as well. Yeah. Um, I, and I also include some additional, uh, phone calls and follow-up support. So I just try to factor in all of that. I don't think you and I have ever actually talked about what we charge for e-design. We're going to dive into that sometime. Yeah, we're going to do a future a, episode. We're going to do a future episode on our e-design process and we can dive into that more. Yeah. 
but yeah, I used to charge for clients who were dead set on wanting to do their own purchasing. I used to charge a higher rate, but that became sticky and icky. Yes. I did the same thing. I quickly abandoned that. And what I do now is I actually just do e-design and even if it's local and then if they want it's a, so it's a flat fee and if they want any additional services outside of the e-design package that is standard then i charge my hourly rate for that i think that's great so yeah. to sum up the answer to melissa's question how do you determine your hourly rate there's the technical side of it and there's also just kind of a, a feeling it out value side of it i think it's it can be a good thing to look at what other people are doing in your city, in your industry, but you also don't want to get caught up in the comparison trap and doing what someone else is doing just because they're doing it. Yeah. I say start with the math, figure out how much yeah. you need to bring in to, to, to live the lifestyle that you want. Awesome. And work backwards from there. Well, let's right. jump to question number two. And this comes from an awesome designer named Christy. She's in Atlanta, Georgia. I love this question. How do you have hard conversations with clients around boundaries without sounding stunned, angry, or condescending? Because <laughs> it's easy to <laughs> be really stunned in the moment when clients ask you an inappropriate question or text mm -hmm. you at 1030 at night and are upset you don't respond to them. How have you handled things like that? Just setting yeah. boundaries and handling boundary crossing with clients? Well, I think it's would be helpful to start with talking about what are some of the boundaries that we have in place with our, our clients and how have we handled them. You mentioned one of them, which is texting. I don't text with my clients usually. I prefer email. I have it in my contract that, you know, email is for friends and family and that business emails can get lost. You mean texting? Sorry, texting. Thank you. Texting is <laughs> texting, for friends and family. Texting is for friends and family. Um, and the the exception that I have is that if if it's a logistics thing, say they're running late for a meeting, they need to let me know. Of course, you know, or pick up the phone and call me. They can always call me uh, during business hours. Uh, if I can answer, I will. If not, I will get back to them. So no texting is one for me. And I'm trying to think around other boundaries. Oh, I think another boundary that I have with clients is um, popping up six months later <laughs> and asking for a random design thing and expecting it to be something that I can just like whip out real quick and do. And I'm, you know, I'm clearly in the midst of working with some other clients. So how do you respond without sounding stunned, angry, or condescending? <laughs> I, I, I'm stunned just trying to think of how to respond to that kind of thing. I mean, um, I don't think, I don't think my struggle is sounding angry. No, I think stunned is a, is a good reaction. And you know, it's just a delicate situation because this is one of those instances you, you've got to step up and do the hard thing that a boss does. And that is to have those honest conversations with clients. If this were easy, everyone would do it. There's a reason a lot of people do not want to run their own businesses. They do not want the responsibility of having these difficult conversations and managing people and managing expectations. And so for me, I try to head things off at the past. I really have a lot of this, like you do too, Kate, in my welcome kit, in my contract. We talk about that early on. 
And that does eliminate some of it for me. And maybe this sounds passive aggressive, but if a client texts me at eight o'clock at night, I leave it unread and I respond to it the next business day. I don't comment. I don't make a deal about it. I just, and I get, and I do let clients text me, which is different than how you operate. Even if it's email, I just don't acknowledge it till the next business day. And then I respond the next business day. And it doesn't often even warrant a conversation in those contexts because I've already spelled it out to them in our agreements and our welcome package. And I, you know, think of it as if you were working in a corporate office and you had outlook on your computer and you didn't check it at home, it would just be there in the morning and you would respond to it and you would go on. But I wonder if she's asking more about if clients maybe give you pushback on it. So one of the things that I had been taught at one point is the Aikido method of responding to people. And it's Aikido is a Japanese form of martial arts. And the idea behind that is that instead of, so in the martial arts form, when someone, and if anybody's an Aikido like master out there and I'm using the wrong words, don't like throw me under the bus. I, <laughs> I'm not an Aikido master, but the principles remain. But when someone is coming at you with a hit, instead of leaning into that, you actually reach out and you absorb it and you, you follow through behind it. And you can't see my movements, but, um, she's yeah. basically a ninja right now is what's going on. <laughs> far from true. And so the idea of being to absorb the punch. And so as, as that relates to communication, the idea is to absorb it by reading or repeating what it is that you heard the client say, just to make sure that you understood it correctly. And that also gives you a chance to just mentally and emotionally pause for just a second so you can think about the best way to respond with grace versus being defensive. So yeah, punching back, being reactive. Right. So if you practice the Aikido communication, you repeat back what it is that they said to you. Uh, you can say, what I'm hearing is blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and give them a chance to respond, make sure that you have understood them correctly. And then whatever the case may be, let's say, uh, another one could be like an invoice, you know, you, they receive an invoice that maybe they weren't expecting. Uh, and, and this happens sometimes and we have to explain what we've already explained once before, but maybe they had selective listening or hearing at that moment. Explain how you work, explain that there is a, record of all of the hours and how we spent our time and that they have, you know, the freedom to look over that and make sure that everything looks right to them. Um, but just go back, go back to your contract. I don't like saying, well, in my contract, it says blah, blah, yeah. blah. <laughs> A lot of what's in my contract is reiterated. And it's very simple and clear terms in the welcome kit. So I sometimes will refer to the welcome kit. I will, um, always just make sure that I'm repeating back to them what it is they said so that I understood it correctly and use the phrase, I understand. And you can say, I understand that this may seem like a, a lot of money right now. Let's take a look at how this time was spent together. And if there's anything that comes up for you, that's 
seems wrong and accurate or unnecessary to get the job done to, to get you to where you are, then we'll look at that. Um, that's just one example, but repeat what they say and say, I understand can be just a simple technique to not make them feel like you're being defensive. I think that's great, especially with, you know, those really sensitive moments where you can tell there's emotion behind what they are expressing to you. It's not just, I don't know, I'm mad you didn't respond to my text at eight o'clock. And you're like, yeah, I was sleeping. Mama needed a, an early di- an early night. But I think that's a really great way to handle is to, like you said, sort of help absorb, absorb the punch and be on their team instead of coming at it from a defensive, you know my rules. These are our boundaries. We've talked about these. Yeah. I love the way that it's like, it's very and, loving and graceful what you're saying. And I think that's so important when you are working with humans. Absolutely. I think some key phrases to just put these into your um, everyday language is thank you for sharing that with me. Even if you think somebody is wrong, if you can say thank you for sharing that with me, it doesn't make them right and you wrong. It just simply tells them, I, I hear what you're saying. Or I understand how it can feel, fill in the blank. Yep. Great question. Yeah, you're good at this, girl. This this is a it's a really challenging thing when there are boundaries crossed. And it can be a bit easier, I think, when you have established the boundaries in the beginning and you can acknowledge them and remind them of the boundaries and why. If you don't have boundaries in place, that is a really important part of your onboarding process is to communicate your boundaries to your client. So that's definitely something to consider if you don't already have something in writing that you share with your clients about what you expect and what they can expect of you too when it comes to that. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Yeah. I'm, I'm dying to hear your take on this question, Kate, because this came from someone you know. So why don't you bring us up to speed? Sure. So Dallas from Mount Pleasant, South Carolina asked, I just sent my first furniture proposal to a client and then they completely shocked me. Ouch. Yeah. They searched all products online, even though I was giving them below retail on all products. They have a, he has in quotes, better coupon they found. And, and now are saying they will purchase my proposed items elsewhere. So how do you all show your clients items without them Google image searching and then not even using you for the purchasing? Any advice would be super helpful. I've never had a client do this to the, to this extent and I'm going to lose a good bit of profit now. First of all, Dallas, I'm sorry. That blows. (laughs) Just does. There's no other way to put it. At the same time, this I think is the world that we live in an interior design today. Um, especially for those who are not at this luxury level of doing all custom, one-of-a-kind bespoke designs, which is a good amount of us, and chances are just about everybody that's listening to this today. So, um, I mean, I certainly have some thoughts. Um, I can can start. I, I think for me, there are a couple of things that I do. Number one, I... So I I happened to get this question from Dallas through the same, we use the same software, Gather, which is a 
similar product to Ivy, which many of you use. And so they do see their images online and they, if they're savvy enough, can Google search them. Uh, one of the small ways that I minimize this is if it says, if it's called the Carter coffee table, for example, I simply change that name to just wood coffee table. And this just makes it one step harder to research because it is easier to find when you use that name. Of course, they can always Google image search it, but that's not as easy to do. So that's one step. And this is not to be sneaky with my clients. This is simply to just protect myself from being able to finish the job the way that it was intended. I've certainly had this happen to me before and, and it, it doesn't feel good. The other thing that I do, honestly, though, is when earlier when we were talking about how do we set our rates, and I mentioned that I look at how many hours, or excuse me, how many weeks I have in a week. I can't talk this morning. How many weeks in a year I have to work? And I figure out how much money I need to make for that year for my family. And I go backwards and I do the math. I don't even figure into that number merchandise sold. Yes. So basically any merchandise that I sell for a client is icing on the cake. It's bonus money. It's money for me to go to market, to take a course, to hire a coach. Those funds are not part of my overall annual budgeting uh, equation. <laughs> and is that because they're unpredictable? Because it is. you can't rely on, pro and I agree with you, you straight up, we cannot rely on product sales anymore. I feel like the clients that are going to shop you are going to shop you, period. I mean, you can, you can try, but I feel like not that it's not worth protecting your sources as best you can, but there are just people who are going to be determined to shop you. And even if they can't find the exact pieces, they'll just find similar stuff and buy it anyway. They don't really understand the value of the products you're proposing and why. They're just like, oh, I can get the look for cheaper. That's just going to be some people I have found in my experience. Yeah, I do think, though, to some extent, sticking with your trade-only sources and, and the internet is making that harder and harder, but it is helpful when you can source trade only um, versus your retailers like West Elm, Pottery Barn, those places, because those are so much easier to access. And so that's, that makes it a little easier. It's not a, it's not a perfect solution, but it, it does help. Yeah. You know, and I, with upholstery too, I, you know, I love Lee Industries. That's one of my favorite that's my go-to upholstery company. And I think clients appreciate when they can get a piece of furniture that can last them much longer than those retail pieces. And I am very careful to go through and show them the inside of what the, there are diagrams that Lee offers that shows the construction and the quality and how it's different from, you know, what is an eight way hand tied, piece of upholstery sofa look like compared to a sinuous spring construction, which you're going to find at your, even like restoration hardware, I think they don't do eight way hand tied. So <laughs> eight way hand tied is going to be much more um, durable. It's going to last a lifetime and there is a premium to it, but those sort of things are ways that you can show the value of, of those higher end pieces and, and get that sale.
but I realize it's not possible to do it across the board for every project. No, that's true. And you make a good point about, you know, doing Lee. Lee is custom or at least semi-custom. I mean, there's totally custom. Yeah. It's a lot harder to shop when you are working with a vendor that gives thousands of fabric options and frame options and you can really customize it. I mean, sure. They could try to contact a showroom and get those specific specs, but that's, that's a headache. So you're absolutely right that sticking with trade-only vendors, especially ones that allow customization or are fully custom, is going to be an easier way to keep those products, keep that product sale through your business instead of client shopping. Because you're right, if you're, if you're specking a West Elm sofa, and I totally understand that some clients and some budgets, that's, that's all I got, you're way more likely to have someone you know, use a 30% off coupon and circumvent you than you are with the other brands. And yes, I know West Elm was at a certain low price point, but guys, there are trade only vendors that you can make good margins on that are similar price points. This is why we believe it's really important to go to markets, to check out vendors, to meet them, to get to know the people. Those are game changers when you are specifying. And I think we have a whole episode upcoming just about specifying and trade only sources and things. So we'll save going deeper for that. But I can just tell you, Dallas, this is definitely something that I've had happen. And it sucks because even though you haven't spent the money, you've, you've got an idea in your head of what you can expect to be making on this project. You know what your margins are. And it sucks hard to lose that. It really feels like a blow. It does. I, I just was reminded of another method that I remind my clients of uh, the service that they lose when they go out and buy their own, when they go rogue. <laughs> as I, when as they I go it. rogue. So when they go rogue on you and they go and purchase something, um, you they really lose any sort of ability for you to help them should slash when something arrives damaged, broken, just not right. And I've had, I had a client recently who, bought the lights for their island on our own and I lost, you know, several thousand dollars to that sale, even though again, I was giving her a, a trade discount. I was sharing part of the discount with her and they came in and they weren't right. And it's because they needed to be, the length needed to be customized prior to ordering, but she didn't know that because she's not me. She didn't. She's, and so she was like, well, can you help me with the return? And I'm like, I, if I had purchased them, this would already be done for you. But because you bought them on your own, I, there's no way for me to help protect you and and get that fixed. So, um, she learned the hard way, unfortunately. And that was a situation where back to Christy's question, I, you know, had to not sound condescending when I said that, but it was just, he crossed a boundary and I couldn't help her. And if you remind your clients of that often early and often, then they will likely see the value of letting you handle the procurement process for them because you are in a position to handle issues, not if, but when they arrived, you have, you have the ability to get things repaired or replaced in a systematic, efficient manner. And it just is part of the, the role and work that you do. And if they do it and something comes in and it's wrong or damaged, that just becomes another headache for them. Yeah. And worse is chances are they're going to be cursing your name, even though you did your job and it's not your fault. It's somehow psychologically for them 
feels like it's your responsibility. So that's a lose lose. So all I'm saying is just remind them that they have coverage and protection if they will allow you to help take care of the ordering and purchasing. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, when you're working with great vendors and you build relationships, you have a person you can pick up the phone and call. That is a way different experience than, you know, emailing Wayfair customer service and trying to get them to resolve something. And not to say big brands will not do a good job, but I have found it's a lot more difficult for clients to get a favorable response and get things expedited quickly when they're just one client of hundreds of thousands, as opposed to having a personal relationship and connection, you know, like we do as designers that we build over the years. That's true. That's such a good question. And it's a, it's a hard place to be. Yeah. What about um, paper only copies of, of, um, your specs. <laughs> Somebody recommended that to me once. It's like at the presentation, you just give them paper copies. You can't really, and you put a generic name on there and they can't really yeah, that's, Google search that's, that as, as, as easy. I, I don't know. Does that feel like icky in any way to you? You know, I try to look at it from the other point of view. If I were the client yeah. and I had a designer showing me pictures, but I wasn't allowed to see more or see it online or see more, like that just to me feels like, what are they hiding? And so I've opted for more transparency with products and with photos and things like that. And I have some clients that they just, they're busy. They are not going to spend time shopping me. I really do feel like it's sometimes more about the client than how you handle it. Because sometimes you could give clients a a website link and they're not going to go buy it on their own. They do not want to deal with it. So it really is. I'm learning early on in the project. I need to start getting a better sense of what the client wants to invest, how involved they really want to be, not how involved they tell me they want to be. Cause everyone's like, I just want you to do it all. I don't want to handle this. <laughs> and they're breathing down my neck every step of the way. So I'm starting to find other ways to do things early on. One thing I'm exploring and I haven't got it set up yet, but is affiliate links so that if a client, you know, is going to shop me, at least they can shop it from a link where I earn a small commission. You know, especially for e-design, that's a great revenue stream. We can we can dig on that in a later episode. But there's just people that are going to do it whether you want to or not. And there's some people that won't and they have the money and the time. I do feel like though withholding information does not build trust. And I don't mean like, you know, it's you could absolutely white label something and put a different oh. name on it. But if you just give them paper copy and you're like, nope, no more pictures, no more details. No, no. Like a check. But that just feels yeah. weird to me. No. Okay. I'm glad you said that because I, maybe I wasn't clear. Number one, if anybody does ask, I absolutely share that with that information with them. So far, nobody has asked. I, and I also include lots and lots of pictures. I've never done just a paper copy. I'm, I'm just curious, but guys, there's, there are companies, huge companies that do this all the time. As you said, white label, um, you know, we sell, well, I don't even want to say this company's name, but there is a particular company that I don't work with anymore because they have not come through on quality for me, but I see their same products being repackaged and labeled under Crate and Barrel and West Elm and those other big box retailers. If it's the one you're thinking of, I've seen them at Anthropology. Yeah, with, mm-hmm. and with different under just different names. So this is an industry practice. It's not being sleazy. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Is that 
<laughs> most companies white label. Wayfair does the same thing. Yeah. You can find the same table lamp on seven different websites and it's called seven different things. And that's perfectly okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what cracks me up though is they all use the same photos. So you're like, I'm pretty sure that's literally the same piece from the same manufacturer. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so just to recap Dallas, I think number one, set up the expectation with your clients very early on, on who's going to be doing the purchasing. You may want to explore charging a higher rate if you're for clients who want to do their own purchasing. It's something we've tried to varying degrees of success. That doesn't mean it couldn't work for you, but it is something you might want to consider. And um, number two, sell your clients on the value of having you take care of that procurement process and ordering and tracking and handling deficiencies and damages and remind them that it's a huge headache for them because they don't know who to call. They don't know what to do. And it's, and remind them stuff is going to come damaged. It always, it always happens. <laughs> just the nature of, of the beast. Yeah. So it's not the exception to the rule. It is the rule. There's always yeah. going to be something that you have to handle and deal with an issue. Yeah. And, and for me, I don't build into my business model income from product merchandise. It's simply a bonus for, for me and my business. Yeah. May, that may or may not work for some of you. Um, but for me, it's, it's working right now. So yeah. Anything else? Well, I'm just with you in that profit on cogs on your actual cost of goods you're selling. I treat that as gravy. Like it's awesome if it comes in, but I'm not counting on it to pay my bills. My hourly rate, my billing structure is set up that our billables are all we need but selling products is a sweet bonus. But I think with the way things are going, these times are a changing kids. Yeah. It, it's, it's hard to rely on you. You can't, I don't, I really believe you cannot rely on product margins because they are unpredictable and you can't force, you can't strong arm a client into purchasing through you. They have That's the autonomy to though. not write you a check. <laughs> oh, it's yucky. But I feel like it's one of those things that a lot of designers are like, oh, but it's so hard and we can't. Sell. Like, yeah, things are changing. Wayfair is not going away. Paragold, if you're not familiar with that, is the higher end version of Wayfair. And they are selling all the higher end trade only brands directly to retail clients. This is the marketplace that we're working in. And if we're going to stay successful and thriving and profitable as designers, we have to adapt you can't, you can't resist, do not resist, but we've got to get creative and figure out ways to communicate our value, why the service we bring is worth it and why it is worth a client potentially investing a little bit more to purchase through us. Yes. I want to, <laughs> I want to add one, one more little nugget to this. I recently explored the idea of a purchasing agent, the one, yes, the one that I spoke with is Designers Inc. You guys may be familiar with them, but they, on trade-only sources, okay, so not not your big box retailers, but trade-only sources, they will do all of the purchasing for you. Their business model is set up so that you still get your trade discount, and they still get paid um, from their commission uh, from their vendors. They have great relationships with them. They carry thousands of products, hundreds of lines, and they actually do all the work at heavy lifting for you and get it to your receiver. And from that standpoint, if I do have a project where a good majority of our items are trade only, then I can actually tell my client um, that 
they have, I don't tell them this up front. It's only if they sort of exceed to this threshold of a certain dollar amount, then I actually offer complimentary purchasing services for them. And I actually get, my plan is to get designers, design, designers Inc. to do it for me. There, there are others out there. I'm not, this isn't a pitch for them. I'm just exploring this. But in this case, your clients, <laughs> this is the world that we live in too of free shipping, no tax, here tomorrow. <laughs> yes. And, and that's not really where we want to be as designers, but that's where consumers' minds are. And so it's part education, but also if there are any things that you can do to offer incentives or perks like that, like complimentary purchasing, because you are making a good profit and then they don't feel like, well, why would I pay you however many dollars an hour to do this for me when I can just buy it for free? So that could be another incentive that you, you play around with. But, um, it, it takes some work to figure out what will work right and well for you and your market segment and the level where your clients are today and understand that as you grow and you change and you start to get higher end projects um, that you should continue to reevaluate those decisions and see if you have grown beyond a certain level of, of uh, client types. Yeah, that's a, that's good insight. Those just might not be your clients. And Kate, you mentioned the free shipping thing. If you guys haven't listened to episode nine, that one is an inside look at our design process part two. We dive really deep into this idea of free shipping because that is something I just started implementing and pricing and ordering. So go back and listen to that one. That might help out as well, tackling the solution to this problem. Yeah, cool. Well, I think, I think that about sums it up for today. Thank you guys so much for sending in your questions. Don't forget, you can ask us more questions. We will continue to do these episodes, and we love getting questions around really anything. You can ask us about the, the finances and the business side of it, um, marketing, purchasing, balancing work and life, and all of those kinds of questions. Everything's yeah. um, on the table. Yeah, we would love to hear more from you. I said every 10 episodes, we want to tackle your direct questions. And like some of them came in already and they're beefy enough that we're going to devote full episodes to them. So we want to make sure that we are talking about topics that you care about. So if there's something you've been wondering, or maybe you've heard one answer, but just want a different perspective, we would love to help you out with that. And awesome. as always, you can reach us everywhere at Designers Getting Coffee. Thanks guys. See you next week. Hey designer, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes so we can continue to connect with badass design bosses like you. For more Designers Getting Coffee and to join the conversation, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Designers Getting Coffee.